Hello, this is longtime Milwaukee radio personality Steve Pallack. Stand by, your next episode is queued up. The on air light is lit. It's season five of the Bait and Switch podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch podcast. It is Chris Byer, as always, with my co-host, Jim Martin. How are you doing tonight, Jim? Fantastic. How are you, Chris? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. good. How's that lower back? The back is feeling better. Yeah, immediately. Like, as soon as I walked out of the office, I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's good. We don't generally talk about my profession here, but Jim came in the office. I just violated HIPAA. You're all right with that? Uh, yep, I guess so. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll hear from my lawyers later, but okay. you know, we don't have to talk about that on the air. <laughs> yeah. We talked a little bit off air here. I'm getting a little concerned about this whole thing in Ukraine. Right. Putin, he wants to control Ukraine because then he can covers all of Asia and he'll get seven extra armies per turn. That's true. That's, yeah. and it's not easy to hold. No, no. And I think no. he's got a set. I think he's going to turn it in next. You time. know, I, I was thinking the same thing. He's got he, I, I think he has to have a set, right? He's got five cards in his hand. Yeah, I know. He's got so a set. I, yeah. Next turn, it's not not looking good. Ukraine, they have not been uh, unfamiliar with uh, meddling from the Russians. Right. You sure. remember the uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember this is before your time. But you've heard about the great famine in the 30s in Ukraine, right? Caused by Stalin and his trying to do collectivist stuff. Killed mm-hmm. five million people. Really? Yep. It there must be of, like 12 billion people in Russia. The, every time you hear about somebody, people dying, like they lost over a million people, right? In the World War II. I mean, just millions. They, when they lose people, they lose them by the millions. So it's kind of like Russia's version of the lab leak. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> On a more serious note, a conflict with Russia could involve nuclear weapons. So I'm a little concerned. Yeah. They've got those suitcase nukes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I understand now that they've got new technology where they put wheels on those suitcases. And so okay. now, you know, they can zip that thing right around the airport. Sure. Yeah. And they fit in the overhead. They don't have to check that nuclear suitcase. Yeah, no, no. They just slide it right up there yeah. or under their seat even, you know, yeah. just slide it under the seat in front of you. So that's yeah. a problem. Keep it. Keep an eye out for that. Our guest tonight is Paul Hoffman. He is another fellow Wauwatosan uh, who is an author. And he wrote a book uh, some eight, nine, ten years ago, 2012. Uh, called Murder in Wauwatosa. I remember when it came out, and I just happened to see it when I was out at my dentist's office, honestly. And I thought that would be a good guest to get on. So I'd like to welcome Paul Hoffman, author of Murder in Wauwatosa, to our show. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for being here, Paul. Appreciate it. Let's start with the first question. Why did you write this story? I wrote this story because it was something that was bouncing around the back of my head since I was a little kid. Um, originally heard about the story from our next door neighbor on Hillcrest Drive where I grew up, uh, Mrs. Harwood. And I was a little kid and every once in a while, she would just kind of out of the blue say something about the Schumacher boy being killed and the police know who did it. And he was killed by the river and he was killed by the railroad tracks. And, you know, being a little kid, I was sort of freaked out. So I just walked away and didn't pay any more attention. But I did know that my dad bought the house that we were living in from a Mr. Schumacher. So I asked him a few questions and he had no idea if any Schumacher had been killed. And uh, long about 2009, now this thing's, you know, in the back of my head for years, every once in a while, it just kind of crops up Schumacher boy dead, you know, which, what was she 
telling the truth, what, you know, what was she doing? Christmas 2009 at my parents' house on the internet. And I'm like, I'm going to look up stuff on Buddy Schumacher, you know, Schumacher boy, murder. First thing I find is a picture of people carrying a casket out of a house from 1925. And it says Arthur Buddy Schumacher murdered boy. I'm like, oh, my God, something Mrs. Harwood said was true. (laughs) And and it was just like, (laughs) you know, you find the answer to one question and then that just leads to other questions. Well, what happened? You know, mm-hmm. and so I got to find, you know, I got to do some research, find out what happened just to satisfy my, my own curiosity. Well, one thing, you know, leads to another. The whole thing snowballs. I end up getting in touch with like relatives of, of the kid. And uh, it, it just ended up being something where I was like, you know, I could write a book about this. I know enough, you know, and I know how to do this kind of stuff. I was in journalism for 34 years. I know how to write stories. So that's kind of the you know, the, the germination, how, you know, it, it stuck in my head for so long and I had to get the story out just for my own sake. And it ended up fortunately for me becoming a book. Was that your first book that you wrote? Yeah, that was my first one. I had, I had started other ones, but didn't know how to write books before that. Uh, this one, I think this one, because it was so much research, it was nonfiction. It was what I was used to doing in journalism was, you know, finding answers and, asking more questions and, you know, figuring out where to go to find information, um, you know, that I kind of just pieced it together, like different kinds of stories, like I would do in journalism. And then kind of, it was, a you know, like a, a string running throughout the entire book that had this murder as, you know, the, the base baseline. Right. You know, I just on a personal note to interject here, I don't talk much about my business, but as a chiropractor, I had a patient up until a couple of years ago who will go unnamed, who was coming into the office until she was over 100 years old. While reading this book, I figured out the two of those people were classmates, that she graduated from Washington School, the school that Buddy went to, (laughs) that me and Jim went to, and would have been about the same age as this boy. When was he born? 19... Oh, he died in 1925, and he was eight years old. So do the math there. Yeah, 17, yeah. 17. Yeah. Right. This woman was about 19, 17, 19, 18, something like that. She, you know, had she still been a patient? I don't know where she is now. She'd be 104 if she's still with us. But I could have got some firsthand knowledge from her. But anyway, just a personal aside, I, I know somebody that went to school with this kid. You know, but speaking of, ago. you know, talking about <laughs> people of that age, I, I actually met two people who knew Buddy Schumacher. Um, two ladies who lived down, you know, in the state street area, like between 70th and 72nd or something like that. And one of them sent me a a letter. I I got a hold of her and I sent her a note. I said, you know, do you know anything about this? Would you be willing to talk? And she said, and I I, I kid you not. She said, it is still too soon to talk about this. And this is like 90 years after it happened, you know, 85, 90. I'm like, Really? As I was reading the book, I was thinking, um, I, I was trying to figure out, you know, maybe what your reasoning was for, you know, what your interest was in writing the book. And the first thing I thought was, well, I mean, he lived in the in the house that the, the not the house the boy lived in, but the house that his father uh, lived in after that. And so that's probably what it was. You know, he just found out, oh, well, this oh, Schumacher and, and and it turns out it's not I mean, it's kind of that, but that wasn't really 
I mean, it's just interesting hearing what the actual reason was, you know, as Mrs. Harwood, you know, talking about it and then like, oh, what's going on with that anyway? And then it turns out, you know, you just happen to be living in the house of the parents of the boy who, who she was talking about. That's, that's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, they moved into that house on, on Hillcrest about two years after the boy died. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lived at, well, back the street naming and numbering system for the houses was different in 1925 than it is today. It changed in the 30s sometime. So back then it was called Alice Street and Watertown Plank. Um, actually, it had become State Street by then, but it's now 74th and State. Mm-hmm. You know, George Webbs is right there and everything. Um but the and the train tracks are right there, so that's that's where they lived. When you know, and after Buddy died, two years later, they moved into this new subdivision, um, you know, 81st and Hillcrest. Uh, there was a vacant lot next to them, so you know, not not all the lots had houses, so it was kind of, you know, it's it kind of out there, you know, not quite the suburbs of Wauwatosa, but you know, it wasn't totally built up like every house on every lot like it is today. Right. Right. Yeah. You you know. Um... It's a hundred years ago, approximately, that this crime happened. That this boy, Buddy Schumacher, was murdered, and it seems like a long time ago in all of our minds, I'm sure. But there's a lot of parallels with things that are happening today. And one of the themes of the book, I guess, I would say, is this idea of of vagrancy, you know, which nowadays people call homelessness, but it was quite common back then, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, there were a lot of things that fed into that. You were you're in the 1920s, um, so prohibition came along, and all sorts of issues, uh, problems cropped up with that organized crime, and uh, the liquor that was out there was bad because, uh, you know, a lot of it was because you didn't have, you know, government checking on it. So you had a lot of people. In addition to that, you had, you know, the state of mental health care at the time was just kind of wacky. Um, you know, you had a lot of a lot less understanding about those sorts of issues and therefore the treatment of those people, you could get extremely cruel treatment or people just said, you know, just get out of here, leave. So you had a lot of homeless guys, you know, especially men um, riding the rails on the, you know, on the, the freight trains and, you know, just kind of looking for handouts here and there. And, you know, especially in Wauwatosa at this time, along the Menominee River, you had these jungles is what they called them. And, in, you know, big German area, they called them yunkles. But uh, you had very tall reeds, you know, six feet tall reeds. You didn't have a lot of six feet tall men back then. And so, you know, if you were homeless and you were looking for a place to just, you know, kind of hide away, that was a perfect spot to do it. And they were, you know, what they called either hobo encampments or, or you know, tramps would hang out and have little camps there and hide. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, I, I thought it was interesting too, that they, the, you pointed out, I don't know if it was you pointed out or somebody said, but they, uh, they were kind of showing that saying that the, uh, the increase in um, mental instability uh, happened directly after the, after prohibition, right? And and sort of like it's like basically saying like you won't let us drink, so everybody's you know all these mental health problems are cro- cropping up, you know. So I thought it was it was kind of an interesting way to think about it. Uh, prohibition caused so many problems; <laughs> it really yeah. did. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you, you know, obviously this it's a it's we didn't really talk about the actual story, um, which I don't know if we really want to get into all that, but uh, just that this this mystery of this boy who disappeared and was later his body was found, he was killed. Um, but, uh, so it's, it was a pretty heavy story. How did you sort of, 
separate yourself emotionally from the heaviness of that story in order to actually write the story or, or, or could you? I want to say drinking, but um, that's probably not the best, best answer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I, you know, when you're writing something like this um, and it's, it was, you know, a fairly new venture for me to write about, you know, an eight year old boy being murdered. Um, it was not easy to separate um, you know, from a lot of the, the terrible things that I, I read and, uh, you know, some of the things I had to write about and I, some, some of the details I, you know, that I actually found out, I, I don't put in the goriness, the mm. worst of it into the book. I allude to it. I allude to, uh, you know, sexual, uh, issues, uh, assaults and, you know, different things. I try not to get into the, you know, the details. I, I, one of these guys, you know, who was accused uh, of the crime, I got his prison records and I read them and I'm discussions with a psychologist. And I'm like, Oh God, I could not get that out of my head for, you know, weeks. Sure. So yeah. it was, it's really difficult to kind of, you know, just compartmentalize. This is research for the book. I can forget about it now that I'm, you know, having dinner with my family. It doesn't right. work that way. Right. You know, right. I, yeah. maybe the more people do this, the easier it is for them to do, but it, it wasn't that easy for me. Yeah. yeah. How, how, uh, how protective of you, your kids were you after you started researching all this? Cause right now I'm like, you guys aren't leaving the house till you're like 25. <laughs> I, I was like that before I wrote it. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. You know, I, <laughs> yeah. but, and I've, you know, and I've added, I ended up doing a uh, program uh, where I live now in Columbus, Indiana on the book. And we brought in um, a police detective to talk about keeping your kids safe in today's environment using murder in Wauwatosa kind of as a guideline is here's how people messed up. You know, mm -hmm. here's what they did. You know, that was probably pretty good. Here's some of the things they messed up um, here, you know, in today's society with, you know, the things we have today, here's some, here's some pointers for you parents. So they, mm -hmm. you know, we took, and that's one of the things I tried to do with, with this book. And, and I got a, another book we'll talk about later, but in both books, I try to talk about some of the good that has come out of some of these tragedies. Yep. You know, there's this idea that a hundred years ago was a simpler time, but then you read about it and, and it really wasn't that different, I guess, in terms of things like child molestation, it, not as uncommon as you might think back then. I think that today we understand a little bit more about the seriousness of uh, that kind of thing and the repercussions on the child that can happen. Um, and I think back then they just thought, oh, it's not a good thing and let's keep our kids away from them. But I don't think they quite understood the mental long-term mental effects from something like that. Right. Yeah. Right. There was kind of, in the book, stuff like, oh, stay away from that guy. He's been known to do this. And, you know, nowadays right. people are like, oh, my God, this is Amber Alert time. You know, let's let's look for this guy immediately and lock him up. Back then, it was like, stay away from the weird guy. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Right. But I got a quick little personal story of my own. Uh, when I was in high school, I was, actually, maybe I was even a little bit younger. I was 13. Chris, when did you do the triathlon? 
Uh, yeah, I was, it was, I was 18. You were 13, okay. something like yeah, that. Yeah. So I was like 13. So me and, and a buddy of mine, his name was Matt. We went with Chris to this triathlon. Chris was doing this triathlon and we were there to kind of like get his bike ready for him. And then we'd walk to the next stop and get his shoes and whatever, you know, all that stuff. So sort of being his crew. Well, Matt and I both got like, had the stomach flu or something that day. And so we were both really sick. And the, between the, the, the end of the swim, and the start of the run, so we had dropped off Chris with his bike, and Chris was all biking. It was like a mile walk, and this was in summer. It was hot, and and uh, and I and Matt had kind of recovered from his thing. I was still really sick, and we were walking. And this guy pulls up in a car, and he says, "Hey, do you guys, uh, you guys need a ride somewhere?" And you know, looking, and I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, definitely." And Matt's like, "Ah, nope, 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 nope. We're good. We're good." <laughs> like, oh, "Oh, what? Okay, fine." You know, I wasn't in the guy drove away, but. Uh, I'm reading a story. I'm thinking about like, who knows who this guy was, you know, who knows what would have happened. So it's, it's kind of weird to think that, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe the guy was just fine. He saw that I looked sick and he wanted to help or, you know, who knows, but, uh, but anyway, so I, I thought of that as just, so it's a weird thing to, it's a weird thing to even think about, uh, let alone, you know, hear that these kind of things, you know, they happen more frequently yeah. than you'd like to think. And even in our, our time, things like hitchhiking was not, uncommon at least of my people my brother's age and maybe your age as well paul yeah I, in fact uh, one of my classmates uh who I ran cross country with at uh, toast east he uh think he hitchhiked across uh, the country out west and i was like you know it's webby nuts you yeah, know right. is that safe and he's like yeah everybody who picked me up was fine you know i'm like yeah, okay it only takes one <laughs> no kidding wow. you know uh another thing uh, reading the book i think about again how people in our generation were of modern times and we think we're you know a lot of people think oh we're better than previous generations in a lot of different ways and you see how language changes and about how people use certain words in the past that now are archaic and we would view them as inappropriate. But at the time, there were the words that people used and, and we are using words right now that a uh, hundred years from now, the people look back on us like we're animals. The one, a couple of words that stood out, one was moron, right? They'd call right. people morons, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And moron is pejorative now, but back then it was a word they used. Yeah. Words like moron and idiot and things like that were part of the IQ scale. Uh, back then it was more of a scientific term back then i mean i'm sure you know it's still pejorative but not as you know as nasty as it as it had become later on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well and again language evolves and language changes you know for right. example when we were growing up people that we now call african-american were black i'm sure 50 years from now if somebody of a different generation calls somebody oh i knew this black guy growing up people will hold their breath and say, oh, my God, you use that word, right? Yeah, well, I, and the people I knew back then called themselves black. So that's, I mean, that was the term we used. And, uh, you know, it's it's changed, but the older generations, you know, still tend to call themselves that for the most part. I, You know, it's, I, it's an individual thing, but, you know, I mean, as a generalization, you can, you know, kind of look at things like that. Oh, oh was there ever a time... Uh, while you're writing the book where you just felt like, I just, I can't do this anymore. I gotta, I gotta put this down. Okay. Like about every other week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, at first it was just, I need to satisfy my curiosity. And then I started looking for information and actually trying to get a hold of people 
And, you know, it's like, if I'm going to ask them for information, I should tell them I'm actually working on something instead of just some guy who's curious. And so I got a hold of two of Buddy's nephews and I said, yeah, I'm working on a book. Well, yeah, I was working on a book. I didn't know if it was going to get published. Um, I'd never written a book before. So, sure. so yeah, I mean, there were several times throughout, you know, that, that course of the, you know, the three years where I was like, oh, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this. You know, hey, I'm going to quit. And mm-hmm. then I would think, but I told these people I was working on a book. <laughs> so I, mm, yeah. I, better, yeah. I better write one, you know, whether it gets published or not, I need to write one. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I I know you talked about the one woman who said, you know, it's too early to talk about that and that kind of thing. Did you get any other kind of pushback from people like either they didn't want to talk about it or just because of the situation and the, and the, the, what happened or maybe because like they didn't want it in the book. Well, the thing was, this happened so long ago that, you know, the number of people who would have known anything about it, just, there's not a lot. Mm, Sure. And, you know, anybody who would know might have been told by, you know, a, a, a father or mother or, or somebody like that. And it's just so hard to get a hold of, you know, to know who might have any knowledge. I uh, went to the Wauwatosa Police Department, obvious, you know, one of the first places you check. Sure. And they didn't have any information from prior to 1934. So, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was a dead end there. Um you know, the best information I got were from uh, uh, Buddy's nephews, Keith and Brian Egloff. Mm-hmm. And I got a whole one of them was in Virginia. One of them's in Australia. Oh, um, and they had a cousin. I think I think Gordon Schumacher, I think he's in Muskego. But uh, and he actually he actually did some uh, teaching at Tosa East because I met him one time. Hmm. Um, but, yeah, those guys, the, it was like, what do you want? We will give you whatever you want. We'll give you family pictures. We will talk to you about our family. We'll tell you everything we know. Their mother, who was Buddy's sister, never talked about it to them. Mm-hmm. So they just sort of had an understanding when they went to go visit Grandma and Grandpa in 81st and Hillcrest. They were told not to go down by the river. They were told not to go down by the railroad tracks. And one time they did, and he got a whooping. So, right. so yeah. they knew there was something going on there. Mm-hmm. You know, another uh, theme in the book uh, is how certain people confess to the crime, but it turns out that they probably didn't do it. So what goes on in the minds of these people that confess to crimes that they didn't do? Yeah, well, you know, the two two guys in particular confessed to this crime, and they both were in different states, and neither was Wisconsin. So it was kind of odd. Um, the guy in Minnesota, we think, probably confessed because he had committed a similar crime in Minnesota and figured, well, you know, if I confess to this, then... You know, maybe the guy who really did it isn't going to get the, you know, get the electric chair or something because Minnesota didn't have uh, capital punishment at the time. And he thought, well, you know, what the heck? That's kind of yeah. odd. I, th- and the guy in Ohio, I don't I didn't couldn't find out too much more about uh, about him. But, um, you know, both guys kind of got facts of the case wrong and they must have read about it in newspapers. But, you know, things that wouldn't wouldn't have been in newspapers they could, they didn't quite match up. So police figured they probably didn't do it. Mm. I thought that the first guy, the Minnesota guy, I thought there was another time they questioned him and they, they said, well, 
he told us things that were not in the newspaper that kind of collaborated with what actually went on. Now, I, I'm not sure if maybe that was because, because obviously you had, you had the, um, you had these guys who were, who were confessing to this thing, but you also had the, the DA and the sheriff and everybody else who really wanted to bring some closure to this as well. Right. So, so they both, well, at least they had kind of a vested interest in saying, yep, we got this guy. Every, everything's, you know, finally we can put this to rest. Right. So, so I don't know if that really necessarily was true or, um, or if you have any other insight into that, but. Yeah. Well, see the guy in Minnesota, William Brandt, um, he originally confesses to the crime. Police go to talk to him and they say, no, he, he couldn't have done it because, you know, he got some of the facts wrong. And then like a day or two later, they're like, oh, oh yeah, he did it. And it's <laughs> like, what? <laughs> right. What the heck's going on there? And so, you know, you talk about, you know, wanting closure and, you know, wanting to put this case to rest and wanting to make, you know, the people in town, you know, feel a little bit safer that, oh, we caught the killer. Don't worry. He's not around anymore. Um, yeah, I think there was some of that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and the real killer, I, whether they knew actually knew who he was, um, couldn't pin it on him, didn't really know, whatever. Um, I think he was gone. So they figured, well, you know, the real killer's gone and this guy confessed. So, you know, hey, it's all tied up in a bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Do you, uh, you said, you know, we'll never know who the real killer is. Uh, are you in your own mind, assuming it's some vagrant, some hobo of the day? I'm pretty sure it was. If, it, if he didn't kill him, then at least he probably abducted him. Um, you know, not sure exactly what happened after that, but, um, you know, I think if you read the book and you read between the lines and you look at all the evidence in there, I think one man kind of, you know, most of the evidence points to him and, you know, it's mostly circumstantial since people change their minds about what they saw, uh, things like that. But, um, you know, I think there's, I think there's one person you can probably assume at least had something to do with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what, uh, Paul, I kind of want to wrap up this half hour and we're going to talk more about your future literary works beyond 10 years ago. And, the process of being an author and whatnot. But I will say this, that to our listeners, it is a very interesting book. Uh, it's called Murder in Wauwatosa. I was even inspired when I was driving past the cemetery to pull up. I tried mm-hmm. to find the, uh, I tried to find the Did grave you? site. I, I, I thought the same it. thing. I got to go look I for looked, that. Yeah. I looked up at, you said it was near the, the high spot of the, of the cemetery. Couldn't quite it's find just, it. It's just, uh, it's, yeah, I wrote it in the book and then I went and looked and I'm like, eh, it's, eh, it's off a little bit, but yeah. it, it's kind of in that general area. Yeah. Back behind Longfellow there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, it's, you know, what I like about it is it's a time capsule again of a era of a hundred years ago and of a, of a place that we obviously all grew up in. And so when you name places in the book where, where things happened, you know, I, in my mind's eye, I can picture it. And, in my mind's eye, I'm trying to picture a Wauwatosa of, of woods and trees and fields and not homes. Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to picture my hometown in a different era. For sure. Right. Yeah. 1925 was a lot different, uh, Wauwatosa. Um, you know, you probably, well, let's say at the beginning of the decade, you had about 5,800 people in town. And by the end of the decade, maybe 20,000 or something like that. So you're talking, you know, 12, 15,000 people in town were, and, 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 you know, Milwaukee was not quite as close, you know, 
to Wauwatosa as a, I mean, you can't even tell. You go across 60th Street and you're like, I didn't know I was in a different city. Right. You know, back then it was a little bit different. Um, you know, they were just starting to get traffic on the on the rails and State Street was was, you know, just coming around uh, and travel was getting easier. So it's you, you're talking about a lot of changes in the 20s. Uh, you know, for Wauwatosa. So it's, yeah, a much different place. But I, I did like, like you said, I really liked being able to pinpoint where these things happened and being able to translate, you know, addresses and street names from what they were back then to what they are today. And that was kind of one of the interesting parts for me was just being able to translate all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks again for uh, recounting this book. That you wrote ten years ago, but it's 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 a good book, and I encourage our listeners to pick it up. Murder in Wauwatosa. Absolutely. And, uh, we'll take it's it's available everywhere. Check your local bookstore, and it's online everywhere. Amazon, yep. I'm assuming. That too. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, we'll talk in just a bit. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast for the conclusion of our interview with author and publisher Paul Hoffman. You've made it to the end of yet another Bait and Switch podcast. Spread the word.